0: toward becoming a fully committed follower of Jesus Christ. Enjoy. So when we're watching a movie, the the visual backdrops kind of really help us understand the story. So if you've seen The Sound of Music, you know that the very opening scene is Julie Andrews twirling and swirling and singing on this hilltop surrounded by the Austrian Alps. And it kind of sets the whole scene up. It sets the whole stage for the the story. Uh, And so, you know, we know that it's going to be in Austria and there's lots of things happening there. Now, if we took Julie and we put her, say, in the desert, then that would make for like a really different kind of story. So she would be singing like The Sands Are Alive with The Sound of Music or something like that. Or if we put her on a pirate ship, you know, she might be singing, you know, these are a few of me favorite things, Arg, you know. So it would just kind of change the whole whole thing. And it just really wouldn't work the, the same way. But in The Sound of Music, there's not only visual backdrops, but there's a historical backdrop going on. So there is this this whole element of the, the German annexation of Austria going around in the background. Now, if you watch the movie and you only pay attention to the von Trapp family, and that's the front story, okay? You know, the von Trapps with their, like, 38 children, and so they find out that they're musical and all of that. If you only pay attention to the von Trapps, and you, you ignore the backdrop of the history, then some of it is not gonna make sense to you. So, for example, when you get to the end of the movie and there's the concert where the family is singing and you've got the Nazi sympathizers like sitting in the row and they're like keeping an eye out because as soon as the concert is over, they're gonna snatch you know, Captain Von Trapp and you know, but they meanwhile have a plan to escape and, and get away, and if that is spoiling this for any of you, then that is on you because the movie has been out for over 50 years, almost 60 years now, so you should have seen it by now. So, you know, we're, we're, you're not, none of that concert is gonna make any sense to you if you don't understand the history. There's a similar dynamic going on in the Hebrew prophets. So including Hosea, which is the prophet that we're studying for for the next several months. If you ignore the backdrop, if you ignore the historical backdrop, some of it is not gonna make sense to you. And you're gonna be reading the prophets and you're gonna be saying things like, wow, God is like mean. Like God is like triggered. Like what is going on? He seems to be overreacting. And the reality is that there is very good reason for God's anger, for his correction, for his discipline, because there is a bigger story going on than we sometimes see just with reading the prophets. And it's actually remarkably relevant to us, even though it's very, very old. And we're gonna start looking at some of that backdrop to Hosea today. If you would turn with me to 2 Kings, not Hosea today, but 2 Kings chapter 14, we are in a series studying Hosea, we're calling it God's Way with the Wayward, and we're going to look at the historical backdrop today to Hosea. Next week, we're going to get into chapter one. We're actually going to dig into Hosea, but I just want to remind you and maybe inform you for some of you who may not have been here last week that we asked the question, why study the Hebrew prophets anyway? I mean, maybe you're here for the first time this morning and you're going, wow, what did I get dropped into? Like, why are we picking this obscure book from you know, the Old Testament and stuff. Why why study the Hebrew prophets? Well, the answer to that we saw from the Bible last week in 2 Timothy 3.16 is that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for four things, teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. So how much of Scripture is God-breathed? All of it. And how much of Scripture is profitable? All of it, okay? So we, we study the prophets because in prophecy, we hear God's heart. That's where we landed last week. And so today, we're going to look at the historical backdrop to help us understand Hosea better. And so if you're a history geek, then you're going to love this today. The rest of us, and I will include me in that the rest of us category. I'm gonna help us keep up with this, okay, today, but you history people are gonna, you're gonna love it. Okay, so start. we're gonna start with Hosea 1.1. I'll just put this, we'll put this on the screen since you're turned to 2 Kings there. But Hosea 1.1 is the setting of the book of Hosea, and it says, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, four kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, two kings of Israel. Actually, in the days of Jeroboam is what we're looking at, but there are two kings of Israel mentioned there. So in Hosea's day, the people of Israel are a divided kingdom, but it was not always that way. So when, when God rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt, he took them to the promised land where, where they settled, and after they had been there for a period of time, they asked God for a king. They said, we want to be like all the nations around us. and have, we, we don't want you, God, as king. We want like a real live human king. So God said, okay, I will accommodate you. And he, he called Saul to be their, their first king, king, king of a united kingdom. Saul, it wasn't very long. It, he, Saul started out okay, but it wasn't very long before he lost his moral grounding And so God called David to replace him. And then David became arguably Israel's greatest king, the king of a united kingdom and the largest land area that that Israel ever achieved. After David, Solomon came. And Solomon started out okay but he too lost his moral grounding, and after Solomon, the the kingdom divided, and I won't get into all the political issues of, of how that happened, but the kingdom divided into two pieces, and the southern kingdom was known as Judah and continued to be ruled over by descendants of King David, while the Northern Kingdom was known as Israel. That is, by the way, who Hosea is prophesying to, the Northern Kingdom of of Israel. And so the history of the divided kingdom between Israel and Judah is this really sad patchwork of kings, most of whom are bad, and a few of whom are, are good. And so we'll show you a timeline here, and I know that's really small and, and hard to see, but if if you can at least see that the, the green represents good kings and the gray represents bad kings, and if if we could, and maybe one week we'll zoom in on this a little bit, there are a number of kings that start out green and then become gray. They start out good, but then they, they lose their, their moral grounding and so 200 years after David, we meet Jeroboam 2, Jeroboam II, in Hosea 1:1. One, one. Uh, let's look at that again with that little bit of background here. The word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Biri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So Jeroboam, Is the first king that Hosea is prophesying under. And we can read more detail about Jeroboam the second in 2 Kings 14, where you have turned. So we'll do that now. I wanna just read through his whole bio, about a paragraph there, maybe two paragraphs, and then we'll make some, some observations. So starting in verse 23. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, so those are two different Joashes, by the way, but Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, that's who we're focused on, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. Keep that in mind. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Labo Hamath, as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath-hefer." I'll just pause there for a second and say, this is the Jonah that you may be familiar with who ran from God, was thrown overboard, swallowed by a great fish. This prophecy that is referenced here is not recorded anywhere else in scripture, but it is the same Jonah. So it's kind of fun to see how these things weave together. Verse 26, for the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did and his might, how he fought, how he restored Damascus and Hamath to Judah and Israel, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Jeroboam slept with his fathers, the kings of Israel, and Zechariah, his son, reigned in his place. So this is kind of a typical biography of a king. You know, it it starts out um, where they come in the line of kings, gives the length of their reign, tells whether they were good or evil, gives some details about what they did, and then it tells who is their successor. So Jeroboam II has three really clear points to highlight here that were, were positive points to his resume, if, if you will. So stability, strength, and salvation from enemies. Look at both each of those, like really briefly. Stability in verse 23 and I highlighted this when we were reading, he began to reign in Samaria and he reigned 41 years. That's the longest reign of any king in the the northern kingdom of Israel. So to appreciate how that longevity can lead to stability, we should just think for a moment about the kings that succeeded Jeroboam II. So, the, you can. We'll put the timeline up again. Although I know it's, it's you probably can't read it from from there. The Zechariah, who was Jeroboam's son, lasted six months. Okay, so forty one years and then six months. The next king Shalom, one month. One month. Not not too good. There. Menahem after him came ten years. That's that's not too bad. Pekahiah two years, and so again, if we had time to read all of those biographies, we would see a lot of assassinations and uprisings and a lot of intrigue going on. So you can imagine when all of that upheaval is happening, like it's it's really hard to get anything done, right? And so 41 years, if you compare that to Jeroboam's reign, I mean, that allows for a lot of positive things to get done and a lot did happen. The second highlight of his resume was strength. So in verse 25, it says, "'He restored the border of Israel.'" And then in verse 28, it says about halfway down through that verse, it says, "'He restored Damascus and Hamath to Judah in, in Israel.'" So I, I mentioned how David ruled over the largest land mass for, for Israel, it, it was almost restored to, to that peak under Jeroboam and Uzziah in Judah. Those two kings together, if you added that all up, it's, it was almost back to the peak. And this, so this era was considered Israel's golden age under Jeroboam because, I mean, there's just a lot that was going right, a lot of success happening. The other highlight on his resume was salvation from enemies. So in verse 26, it says, the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was bitter. There was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. So he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. So a little more history here. Two generations prior to, to Jeroboam II, Jeroboam's grandfather was, was just brought to his knees by Syria. So if you can flip back a page, go back to chapter 13, verse seven. This is a really sad verse. It says, there was not left to Jehoahaz, and that was his grandfather, an army of more than 50 horsemen and 10 chariots. Imagine that. And ten thousand footmen, for the king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like dust at the threshing. So that was just two generations back. Jeroboam's father started the process of recovery, and he defeated. We're told he. We're told that he defeated the Syrians three times, but then Jeroboam came and he like really continued the progress and brought Israel to its golden age. So all of this sounds like a pretty impressive resume, right? I mean, stability, strength, salvation from from enemies. I mean, Jeroboam is stacking up the successes. And I would just pause here to ask you the question, if there was a human leader in our day that demonstrated those, those successes, stability, strength, um, salvation from, from enemies. I mean, I suspect if we saw someone doing that today, we would say, wow, they're, they're, that's awesome. Like, that, that's really good. We would label them a success. We might even say, wow, you know, God must really be blessing this person and giving them favor, right? And so I know you guys are smart and you know that I'm setting you up. Um, the, the point really is that God. God is more interested in our reverence than our resume. Because I'm sure many of you caught the the downside to Jeroboam. There were two fatal problems for, for Jeroboam that overshadow all of the positive lines on his resume. And we see that in verse 24. He did what was, what? Evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jehovah. Let me just back up. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. See, it doesn't really matter what what your accomplishments, what my accomplishments look like in the sight of other people. Like we may assess somebody as like, wow, it looks like they're doing pretty well, but in the sight of the Lord, he was judged evil. God is more interested in your reverence than your resume. What what does reverence look like? It looks like humility. It looks like a a yieldedness. And and so in this case, we're talking about a king, but each of us has our own little realm that we are responsible for. I'm, I'm almost saying kingdom, but that just sounds weird. We each have a little area that we're responsible for, and we can choose to either do it ourselves and even do it knowingly flying in the face against what God would want, or we can humble ourselves and we can yield ourselves. We can be submissive and say, God, what do you want? How do you want me to influence in this setting? We can be repentant when we blow it. So, So ideally, we want to be yielded, but we're not always. We're not always good at that. And so when we blow it, then we're repentant instead of hardening our hearts. David is a great example of that. Because we we know that David would have been judged as a good king. David was known as a man after God's heart. But any of us who know his biography know he he blew it. He blew it in a major way: adultery and murder. But here's Here's the thing with David. When he was confronted with his sin, he was repentant and he came to God for forgiveness. So God is interested in our reverence. The the primary reason that Jeroboam was called evil is is there in verse 24 in the follow-up sentence. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. All right, so so here let fo- follow me here. This is Jeroboam 2, not departing from the sins of Jeroboam 1, the son of, of Nebat. Jeroboam 1 was the first king in the northern kingdom of Israel. So he was 100 years before Jeroboam the 2nd. When when it, let's go back to Jeroboam the first for just a moment, when he broke away, under God's direction, when he broke away from the the United Kingdom, he did not want the people in the Northern Kingdom, Israel, to, to go back to the Southern Kingdom to worship. And there was a huge draw for them to do that because Solomon had built this unbelievably magnificent temple. It was It was beyond anything that we could even imagine. So they would want to go and worship there. And Jeroboam knew that if they're going back there to worship, then eventually they're they're gonna lose their allegiance. He's gonna lose their allegiance. And so he said, instead, I'll set some places up for you to worship right here. Right here in the northern kingdom. Dan and Bethel, he created statues, he created idols for them to worship so that they wouldn't have to go so far so this was obviously in direct disobedience to God's second commandment in in the 10 commandments you will create no graven image to worship. And so that idolatry continued for for generations. In fact, if we if we read through all of 1 Kings and 2 Kings, what we would see is that 12 times this exact phrase is is used that that he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam. I mean that, that's that's the influence that that idolatry had from that first generation of Of kings. So I want to just pause here to say for us don't underestimate the impact of choosing to depart from the sins of the generations before you. That's the word that, that it uses here in 24. He did not depart. When you and I do not depart, from the sins that we see in our parents, our grandparents, whatever generations that come before us. When we, when we choose to repeat those, then we fall into the same, the same line, the same trap as Jeroboam II. Here's the good news. We can choose to break out of that cycle and out of that continuing sinful process. Jesus Jesus is uniquely able to help us break the cycles of generational sin. So you and I don't have the excuse to use anymore that we're a victim. We're not just a victim of whatever we saw them do and, yeah, I was influenced by this and or I inherited this from from my parent, Jesus is able to break those things because Jesus came and Jesus said, you must be born again. So we're all born once, but Jesus invites us to be reborn, and when we are reborn, we become a child of our heavenly Father, and when we live and walk with our heavenly Father, we start to look more like our Father in heaven. That's what children do is they look like their parents. So, so quit walking in, this is for somebody here or somebody online who's listening. Quit quit walking in the path of your predecessors and, and start walking as a child of your heavenly father and then you'll start looking more like him. I'm out of time, but um don't don't underestimate okay on on the flip side here don't underestimate the impact of the legacy that you are leaving because at the very end of verse 24 it says that jeroboam the first he made israel to sin so here's the one that was kind of casting this shadow over those who would come after him. There's a legacy that you and I are creating and leaving every day with our, our family, the people that we interact with at work, with our, our neighbors. What is, what, what is your influence leading people toward? See, God is more interested in your reverence Than your resume. God is not impressed with the things that human beings are impressed with: stability, material, success, strength. Which are you spending more time building? Your reverence or your resume? We we build our reverence by humbling ourselves, by really by just spending time with our Heavenly Father and humbling ourselves yielding our plans, whatever, and saying, God, what, what do you want for, for me? Repenting when we, we blow it, cultivating a reverence that says there is no one like you and you are worth being the father and the king of my life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness toward us. Thank you that you are able to redeem us from present mistakes from present sins and from past sins that didn't have anything to do with us, but have influenced us um, just by proxy. Lord, thank you that you're able to draw us out of those things. Lord, um, help us to take a different path from Jeroboam the and to break away from the path of his ancestors. Help us Lord to be obedient to you so that we don't need all of the correction that is coming uh, as we read the book of Hosea. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.